Welcome to the New Books Network. Decolonize, reconciliation, colonialism. If you're anywhere near an academic campus, you'll hear these words being used liberally. But what are universities and scholars doing in terms of concrete action in support of Indigenous communities? Are these just empty buzzwords? Hi, I'm Ren Bangert, and this is Darts and Letters. As you already know, we're highlighting our favorite past episodes of Darts and Letters all summer here on the New Books Network. And if you didn't know that, do go back and check out our previous weeks of programming. Every week is a new theme. This week, it's activism and academia. Today, our host Gordon Caddick takes us on an exploration of what decolonization, reconciliation, and colonialism have come to mean within the academy, and what universities need to do to truly hold themselves to account. This is a deeply important and evergreen topic of discussion. I hope you enjoy the episode, and don't forget we're launching brand new episodes of Darts and Letters here on the network starting on September 18th. Now, here's Gordon. Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddick. Darts and Letters is a podcast about arts and letters, but for people who might hack a dart. We are a left-wing show about ideas, about populism, and about the politics of academia. If you go to an event at basically any university campus in Canada, usually the first thing you'll hear is a land acknowledgement. Here's what you'd hear at my school. I wish to acknowledge this land on which the University of Toronto operates. For thousands of years, it has been the traditional land of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and the Mississaugas of the Credit. Today, this meeting place is still the home to many Indigenous people from across Turtle Island, and we are grateful to have the opportunity to work... This acknowledgement is supposed to remind us that universities are built on stolen land, but it is becoming rote. Many people simply do not take them seriously. Baroness von Sketchshow captured the absurdity pretty well. They did this sketch about a theatre company. Before we begin this evening's performance, we would like to acknowledge that this theatre stands on territory of the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat and the Patoon First Nations. We are also mindful of broken covenants and the need to make right with all our relations. And now, please enjoy the show. Oh, uh, sorry, hello. Uh, oh, yes. sorry, excuse me. Um, should we, um, should we go? Excuse me? Oh, no, no, I just mean if we're on someone else's land, shouldn't we, shouldn't we leave? Oh, no, 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 the, the theatre is here now. We'd just like to acknowledge whose land it is. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm so confused. So if we're on someone else's land, shouldn't, shouldn't we do something about that? Or uh, hopefully we'll enjoy the... This confused theatre-goer realises that the theatre is doing nothing for Indigenous people. They're just virtue signalling. But of course, the show must go on. Um, How are we making right? Well, there's a, uh, there's, there's a plaque you can read in the lobby. I'm just, I don't understand. I'm getting a message from the stage manager that we need to begin the show, so please take your seats. But, Have a good time. But, um... Good night. I guess I'll sit down. Enjoy the show. Just enjoy the show. People know this. They don't want acknowledgements to be shallow, so I've noticed this interesting response. The acknowledgements are getting longer. They're getting more impassioned, more morally charged. It's become a kind of virtuous arms race. I get the sentiment, and it might be helpful, or it might be placating, but certainly it's not enough. Because the question isn't how virtuously you acknowledge something, it's what do you do to fix it? How do our universities work to the material benefit of Indigenous people? Do they at all? Or is all this talk of reconciliation just phony? We'll look at those questions through three words. The first word is decolonize. That's everywhere in academia. It's like this guiding ethic. 
Decolonize your syllabus. Decolonize your mind. Decolonize everything. But pollution scientist Dr. Max Liberon isn't quite sure what this means anymore. You can decolonize your kitchen sink this day with a special plumber, like a decolonize. Like it's just, it's become so meaningless. And I'm sort of over defending it. Like I have better things to do than to police the boundaries of what decolonization means because it's been so heavily appropriated. It's been used so much as capital for non-Indigenous folks to meet their non-Indigenous desires. The second word is reconciliation. This is what universities are supposed to be doing playing a role in that reconciliation with Indigenous people. But scholar and activist Pam Palmiter takes universities to task for their hollow symbolic politics. Is all this reconciliation talk even for Indigenous people? Oh my gosh, this is not for Indigenous peoples at all. I mean, if you look at it at the corporate level, the government level, and the university level, this is about, oh my goodness, look at what we're doing, funders. Come and look at our university funders. You know, we're doing reconciliation. And the last word, colonialism. Colonialism is not ancient history. It is ongoing dispossession. Out of one side of our mouths, we acknowledge. Out of the other, we make plans to gobble up new territories for our scholarly projects. We turn to the battle in Hawaii. There's a proposed telescope on sacred Indigenous lands. But Indigenous people are saying no. All that and more on Darts and Letters. Stay tuned. You're listening to Darts and Letters, a show about the politics of academia, ideas, and intellectual life. We're proud to be a new member of the New Books Network. And all this summer, we're playing some highlights from our archives. But... Like Ren said, we are coming back with regular weekly programming this September. So if you like what you hear and you want to hear that, why don't you subscribe to our podcast? Search Darts and Letters wherever you find your podcasts or go to dartsandletters.ca. There is an international consortium poised to build a giant telescope. It's called the 30-meter telescope, and it would be built on Hawaii's tallest mountain, Mauna Kea. The project includes U.S. and Canadian institutions and scholars. Here in Canada, the feds have pledged about a quarter of a billion dollars, and the Canadian Astronomical Society called it their top priority over the next decade. One problem, it's on sacred Indigenous land, so many Indigenous scholars staunchly oppose the project. One of those scholars is Wahikia Miley, Miley is Assistant Professor of Indigenous Politics at the University of Toronto, and last summer he was part of a land defense against the proposed telescope. Yeah, that day seems like it was yesterday and not at the same time. (laughs) So July 15th was the day that TMT construction crews were going to ascend the Mauna Kea Axis Road and begin construction. So I remember I was in Toronto when the governor made that announcement, and then I flew back a few days later to Albuquerque and got on a plane to go to Hilo. And so I I got to Hilo on July 15th at night. And um, the blockade formed actually that morning on July 15th. And so there were kupuna or elders that, along with other Kanaka Maoli and Kia'i, created a blockade, a human blockade, where they sat through the morning and then stayed for many, many days after that to prevent specifically TMT construction crews from accessing their build site. But actually before that sort of human blockade formed, there were eight Kanaka Maoli that early, early that morning on July 15th chained themselves to a cattle guard grate on the road itself to prevent TMT construction crews from ascending the mountain. So those eight kia'i, known as the Cattle Guard Eight, were tied down for 12 hours in the cold, you know, with a lot of folks supporting them, but courageously, you know, risked their lives and, and were willing to make sacrifices to protect Mauna Kea. And so I arrived later that night when folks started to stay and reoccupy this space at Pu'uhuluhulu, which is across the street from the entrance of Mauna Kea Axis Road. It's a, um, a kipuka or a space 
uh, of great sort of lush and environment in a kind of lava field, essentially. And so it's also like a little hill. And it became a place for us to gather, congregate, and live. And so just a few days later, on July 17th, the state of Hawaii mobilized multiple police jurisdictions from Hawaii County Police to Honolulu Police to Maui Police, as well as the U.S. National Army Guard. And with this massive force of police and the U.S. National Guard attempted to disband the blockade. I was there that morning when police deployed and they deployed in waves. It was interesting. We were flanked by police at the police barricade and also on their police that were mobilized in the entrance of Mauna Kea Access Road. So we were sort of like caught on both sides and the negotiations took hours and hours but eventually when negotiations failed, a second sort of mobilization of police came in riot gear, SWAT gear, an LRAD, long-range acoustic device. So that was the police force that we saw that day. And so they ended up arresting 38 Kanaka Maoli Kia'i. 33 of them were elders. Some of them were 90 years old. Women in wheelchairs that, they, that the police had to literally wheel into paddy wagons. How did you feel being there? It was very, very hard to see the way that the state was willing to harm, detain, incarcerate our people, overwhelmingly Kanaka Maoli at this stand to build a telescope. That is a project being proposed by a multinational corporation of partners and stakeholders all over the world, not in Hawaii itself, right? It, it was hard to feel that sort of near spectacular force of the state mobilize in that moment. And it was the, the largest police operation in recent memory in Hawaii too. So, you know, they pulled out all the stops and still, you know, the other way I felt was that they could not defeat us. <laughs> we were victorious and you know, I remember feeling an overwhelming sense of pride and joy when police left Mauna Kea Access Road and when a line of Hawaiian women and non-gender binary folks and men actually placed themselves in front of Kupuna after you know, all these arrests had taken place and, and created and locked arms and said no more kupuna would be taken away and said, we are taking our stand now. Um, and, and they sat in the road for hours. And when police left, um, I remember that line of women and men and non-gender binary folks and the kupuna behind them raising their arms and singing songs and chants in just absolute sublime joy because we had protected Mauna Kea. I was shocked to read in your article in, in the Abolition Journal how the governor claimed that the folks there were drinking alcohol, smoking illegal drugs, and they were generally unsanitary. What was the governor's response and, and what happened next after the police left? So Governor David Ige that night on July 17th issued an emergency proclamation which was a proclamation to declare a state of emergency, which actually suspended some regulatory framework powers to enable police and the U.S. Army National Guard to evacuate us and to intervene with more authority than it had that day. So the emergency proclamation was a way to weaponize the governor's power and the state's power to remove us, to criminalize us. And so David Ige also had a press conference where he discussed the emergency proclamation and the state of emergency that he had issued that night, where he talked about how there were reports that the protesters were uh, littering, were um, reportedly doing drugs and drinking alcohol and were not keeping the space of Pu'uhuluhulu sanitary. And so he was referencing that there were porta potties in our Pu'uhonu, which we needed 
to access and that we used. But actually, <laughs> these were incredibly clean porta potties. There was one company that sent a worker, I want to say every day, every other day to clean and that we also took care of ourselves. And so the governor was reaching for a public discourse and narrative to paint us not just as criminals, but as degenerates and also as people that were uh, just dirty. So where is this going now? Is this thing going to get built? It's not going to get built. And it's not going to get built because the community, Kanaka Maoli, and our allies are unwilling to allow this to happen. Nevertheless, the forces at B are quite powerful and strong. And we're talking about, you know, multiple governments that are funding this project. The National Science Foundation is currently evaluating this billion dollar approximately grant that would essentially bail out the observatory corporation and provide it enough cash to finalize its vision for the project. And so at the moment, there are many forces at play to attempt to get the project built, the National Science Foundation being one, uh, but also other governments continuing to build infrastructure for the project, like the actual dome is being built in Canada, for instance. The first light suite of instrumentation for the telescope itself is being built on Vancouver Island in Victoria with the help of faculty from the University of Victoria. And so I've actually been here in Canada and in Toronto for about two years now. After I was at the, at the blockade in 2019, I basically relocated to Toronto to take my position at the University of Toronto in political science. And I accepted responsibility after that from my community and from the Pu'uhonua leadership itself to call on the Canadian federal government to divest from the 30-meter telescope at Mount Makea. So I've been in a two-year-long divestment campaign to call on not just the Canadian government to divest, but I know for certain it won't be Canadian astronomers or the Canadian federal government that stopped this project. It will be us. There's also investment by Kanaka Maoli and Kia'i to continue the work, the hard work behind the scenes with not $2 billion at our disposal to protect our mountain. And we, we've been successful and we will continue to be successful. That was Wahiki Amaili, Assistant Professor of Indigenous Politics at the University of Toronto. A quick update. The U.S.'s extremely large telescope program and the National Science Foundation are currently engaged in an outreach and review process. NSF is still mulling over if they will formally support the project. If they do, they could begin preliminary design reviews late this year. Then there would be environmental assessments. All this could take three years or more. The Canadian Astronomy Association sent us a statement. It read in part, Unless the 30-meter telescope project has consent from the native Hawaiians, Canada's astronomical community cannot support its construction on Mauna Kea. How do you do scientific work in an anti-colonial way? Dr. Max Liberon is a scholar and activist at Memorial University in Newfoundland. Their work points to a way forward. Dr. Liberon runs the Civic Laboratory for Environmental Action Research. The center looks at plastics pollution in the area, but it does its science in a different way. It does it with the consent of the communities and in partnership with those communities. Max says that their work is anti-colonial, and I called them up to hear more about what that really means and how this all got started. I come from a few different places and I have a few different trajectories. I come from a very large family and I grew up in Treaty 6 territory in a little place called Lac La Biche in northern Alberta, Canada. 
I moved out when I was very young to pursue an education as a way to sort of get out of certain cycles that were happening a lot in my community. And so I went to high school in Edmonton, Alberta, uh, downtown, northern Alberta, I guess. And there I started to do biology. I had a really keen interest in biology and, and art as a sort of secondary interest. And I was always pretty sure I was going to be a biologist. But when I started my undergraduate degree in Eastern Canada, I decided that there were not very good ethics. And I totally left biology without getting a degree in it. And instead, I got a degree in art. I have a couple degrees in art. And then I decided that was super unethical. And by then, I was a full-time artist in New York City. And so I went and got my PhD in media culture and communication where I studied plastic pollution from a scientific perspective, but without doing science. When I got my first full-time fancy gig job in Newfoundland and Labrador, where I work now, I came ready to critique plastic based on sort of a social science or critical perspective. But I found there was no plastic pollution science here to critique because we'd had a conservative government for so long and I wasn't sure how to do my job. But because, again, I had a background in biology, I was like, well, and because I knew so much about the scientific methods of plastic pollution at that point, I said, well, I guess I'll do the science. So I didn't even have my full under, I was, I'm, I was one course in a lab short of having a, a biology degree. I started doing research with scientists uh, without saying it was mine, without having a lab that I said was mine. And soon scientists started calling me a scientist and I had, you know, peer reviewed scientific papers. And then I got my first grant from a scientific institution. And I was like, well, I think at this point I can call myself a scientist because I am the only one not calling myself a scientist. And I formalized the lab as a science lab. One thing I appreciate about your book about plastic pollution in the introduction, you do a really good job of defining the terms here, the, the methodological terms. You know, when people talk about colonialism or decolonialism or anti-colonialism, that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I was hoping that you could sort of give me a primer, like, and, and maybe starting with colonialism, because your definition of colonialism is is super wedded to the land, which I think is really grounds it. So could, could you tell, tell me a little bit more about how you understand colonialism um, and how that operates in the lab? Uh, in the book, I talk about colonialism as related to land and, and it being a sort of conquest and domination style relationship to land and Indigenous people where non-Indigenous folks get access or presume access or enact access to Indigenous land for colonial and settler goals, desires, futures, even when those are good. So even like really benevolent environmental actions that assume access to Indigenous land are still colonial. And that's part of why this specificity and this definition work is, is really important, because I think a lot of people truly believe that if you're doing one form of good, you're doing all the forms of good. So if you're doing environmental good, you must also automatically be anti-colonial. But that's very rarely the case, as a lot of other uh, Indigenous scholars have shown, Kyle White, Dina Gilligo-Whitaker, all these folks have shown like, actually, just kidding. Usually, uh, environmentalism is about uh, the dispossession of Indigenous land for the good of the world, minus Indigenous folks. When people say plastic pollution, I was really interested in, in watching some of the, the little mini documentaries about your lab. It's like, really, really teeny. Like, what does plastic pollution really look like? So it actually looks like a lot of things. The vast majority by count are these microplastics and increasingly microfibers and nanoplastics that you can't even see with your eyeballs. So most of them are smaller than a grain of rice. So in the 90s, well, 60s to 90s, most folks thought that Marine plastics came from marine activities, like dumping, like marine dumping and, and fishing gear and stuff. But then we figured out that actually about 80%, which is a weirdly magical number that is not a real quote-unquote empirical number, but about 80%-ish hand-wavy comes from land because the ocean is downhill from everything and plastics last forever and can get blown and washed around. So uh, it's coming from, and, I mean, look around you, plastics everywhere. And that's just the household. So if you then scale up to agriculture or mining or right, these other huge scale things, that's also made largely of plastic. So it's, it's coming from all over the place. So tell me more about how, how is the, the plastic relationship colonial? Like, is, if, is it deliberate? Or I guess one thing is does stand out in the way that you define colonialism is that it's not necessarily bad people or bad structures, but... I mean, there are definitely some... <laughs> 
jerk colonial <laughs> individuals around who are really dedicated to the cause. Uh, so we definitely have our share of that. Um, but I think it's, and yes, you can deal with those folks on individual levels with individual methods. But in the lab and for an anti-colonial science, we turn a lot more to structures of colonialism, things that have come to make sense to the point where you don't really question them, right? So the dominant theory of pollution, the modern theory of pollution, which has only been, has been around for less than 100 years, is that there's a difference between contamination and the presence of a pollutant and pollution, which is when harm starts happening. And that came out in the 30s. That concept was quote unquote proven in the 30s and then became dominant. And so plastics are really tricky because um, they don't really get absorbed by systems. They don't really get nullified or diluted in a way like that say organic pollutants or sewage or this sort of stuff um, happens with. But a lot of the same concepts are being applied to plastics. So like let's find a threshold, like a, an amount of plastic in birds that is an acceptable level, or let's find a, a risk, a tolerable risk for, for how many, you know, numbers of animals can get entangled before we actually have a problem, right? These sorts of things are leaking in. And that's a, that's a colonial land relation, right? Land properly and naturally and lawfully and empirically is there to accept industrial pollution. And it, quote unquote, Nature's gift to industry. It's actually a quote that I read in a uh, in a 1980s industry conference. So that's naturalizing colonial land relations, saying like it's not actually cultural, which it totally is. It's actually natural. Yeah, and that's 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 what a dominant system looks like. Assuming someone says my culture actually comes straight out of nature, they're saying I am king. So you're you're kind of alluding to the idea of the like dose makes the poison sort of toxicological. Like we can figure out a certain level of acceptable pollution poison, but who gets to define what is acceptable? Exactly. And through what knowledge systems. And so this is the huge problem with like fence line communities who live with pollution of all kinds, including plastics and and the and industry and, and government sort of governance bodies where the community is saying we are being harmed. And the other bodies that, that use empirical science and other things are saying, I, I do not detect it with my instrument. <laughs> And those are two fundamentally different concepts of harm. There used to be flowers here and now there aren't. That is harm. My cow has died. That is harm, right? None of those can be legible. And that's that's a dominant system, right? What a dominant system looks like. So you use the term anti-colonial lab and you don't use the term decolonial lab, which is a term that's sort of everywhere, Um so oh. that's why I have no idea. I mean, you can decolonize your kitchen sink this day with a special plumber, like a decolonized, like it's just, it's become so meaningless and I'm sort of over defending it. Like I have better things to do than to police the boundaries of what decolonization means because it's been so heavily appropriated and it's been used so much as capital for non-Indigenous folks to meet their non-Indigenous desires and careers and futures, right? It's been colonized. I align with a lot of other Indigenous scholars that say, look, around here in, in North America, under this particular settler colonial regime, decolonization means the end of genocide and the repatriation of land. So if you're doing something that is not ending genocide or is not giving back land, you might be doing all sorts of good, but you are not doing decolonization. So when I talk about, I talk about anti-colonialism to be a much broader range of things that can include stopping genocide and uh, repatriating and rematriating land, but it can also include just not stopping non-Indigenous access to Indigenous land, so just not doing the research that would just assume access to land, right? These other things that would stop, but it doesn't necessarily include things like inclusion. So including Indigenous people on your syllabus is neither anti-colonial nor decolonial under those definitions, right? It just grants people more access potentially to Indigenous ideas for, for whatever their goals or desires or enrichment might be. So like an Indigenous place name on a street sign at a university campus. Totally a form of good, neither anti-colonial nor, right, look, we've stolen this and we've named it better. Was That's still access and you've just named it named the access differently. Forgive me for dwelling a little bit on the decolonial, but I, I'm curious how you see this sort of, is it like a spectrum of like trivial but helpful reforms that can maybe get people towards anti-colonialism or, or is it more of a sinister kind of like co-opting and mollifying? So this is a question about theories of change. This is how I'm interpreting it. And do I, do I have the, do I subscribe to the 10 small steps theory of change or the something is better than nothing theory of change um, or, you know, that sort of stuff. So I, 
don't really care about the small steps model. We've been doing the small steps model since like 1492 and look at where we are, right? Or we, we being a very, a very wide definition at that point. I'm really interested in infrastructure as a theory of change, like changing not just what's done, but what can and cannot be done. So if if you're in a hallway and there are lots of doors, people can take all those doors. Infrastructural change is like, actually, just kidding. Now there's two doors and I've built both of them. So we're going this way, as opposed to like multiple small changes you can do to to decorate infrastructure that's already there. That doesn't mean I think we we're going to we're, you know we're going to suddenly arrive at this pure D or anti-colonial spot. I think it's a very compromised and fraught sort of journey to do infrastructural change. Um, and some parts of a colonial structure are going to be reproduced, even as you also reproduce anti-colonial things. Uh, I mean, I'm a I'm a Western trained scientist doing Western science in an anti-colonial way. Like, obviously, I've got problems, and things are problematic. But but also, I'm I'm I think I'm changing the horizon of where we end up if we keep doing it this way and not that way. Absolutely, yeah. I'm curious about developing the lab and thinking through all of these complex questions. I mean, it must it must have been a fraught uh, enterprise. How did it go? It is and remains <laughs> a fraught enterprise. And sometimes I'm like, this is a great idea. And a month later, I was like, whoa, that was awful. Sorry, everyone. Let's start over. So we actually started as a feminist lab because feminist science study exists and has a long lineage and has all these great, well-articulated, well, you know, empirically grounded critiques of how not to be a jerk in science, how not to be macho and elitist and recognize different forms of knowledge and, you know, all these sorts of things. And so I used a lot of that as my groundwork when I first started CLEAR and we called ourselves a feminist lab. But then I started to notice that some things that were feminist were, were also kind of colonial in this province, sealing, as in killing and eating seals, uh, is a, is an issue where like ecofeminism and vegan feminism is like, no, you're evil, and Inuit are like, f off, right? This like that that form of universalism is not appropriate here. You can't vilify, you know. Anyway, so so there started being these moments in the lab where I was like, ooh, this is going to be this is insufficient. So even though I came through feminist science. Be- because it's it's the it's a legacy. It's what I was trained in. I was like, okay, but what matters here in this place, and and what do I already know from where I'm from and who I am and who my relations are and how I'm accountable? How do I articulate that as the guiding features of the lab? And this is where an anti-colonial science started to come out. The goals of Clear are to do science in a way that is humble and accountable to good land relations that are here, that are local land relations. It seems to me like maybe there's you know, correct me if I'm wrong, there's sort of like two big outputs. There's the science itself, but like, how ought we do science? So maybe just to get us situated, I would start with the science itself. What sort of questions do you ask? The science itself is actually pretty boring. Our scientific (laughs) question is, how many plastics are there and what kind? (laughs) And that's literally our big scientific question. Um, We do baseline, uh, it's called baseline studies. And it's actually some of the least fancy whiz pop science that's out there to the point where like it won't even be funded by the biggest funder in Canada, the the federal funder, because baselines are not fancy science. But you can't tell if interventions are working. You can't do indigenous governance. You don't know what's up with your food web unless you ask those really basic questions and ask them over and over again over time. And and what what prompts those questions for the lab? Is is like sort of community priority or so when I first got here, I was like, what kind of plastic pollution was here? And there was there was actually a little bit of research, but it was really hard to find because it wasn't called plastic pollution research, right? It was ornithologists, bird scientists who happened to do bird counts, but it wasn't circulating as plastic knowledge. It was circulating as like bird knowledge. And so I was like, how bad is the problem here? So because codfish matter so much in this province, the first thing I looked at was in codfish and... I found plastic and I was like, hooray, I'm a plastic geek. I have job security. And then I was like, oh no, cod are really important here, which is why I chose cod in the first place. Is this going to be a problem? Is this going to cause um, harm to the people who eat cod? Is this going to cause harm to the like commercial fishery? Is this, oh crap, what do I do? I had no idea what my research would mean t- to the people for whom cod was so important. And so I called a meeting for the people who, you know, and they told me. And during that meeting, they also t- asked me questions like, well, what about mackerel? 
I was like, I don't know. And they're like, and what about water? I was like, I don't know. And they're like, what about beyond Petty Harbor? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> and so those became my research questions. And that's all I've been working on for nearly 10 years are the last set of questions from the community peer review process where they're like, okay, well, what about freshwater? fish. I'm like, okay, hang on. <laughs> Let me go get a hundred trout. Hang on. That'll take me a couple of years. I'm curious about what you would say to other researchers, other scientists who want to do this kind of work. Sounds a little daunting, the the relationships that you've built and the the thinking that you've put into these methodologies. Maybe it's not. I don't know. How, how would you go about starting or encouraging someone to start? So do your homework first. Research period is daunting. So it's sort of like, okay, I'm a I'm an organic chemist and I want to now go into a form of chemistry that is not organic. You it's sort of similar. Like, oh, that's pretty intense. Yes, it is. Let's start by reading the Wikipedia entry. And then let's move on to these blogs. And then here's this book with a little more technical language that I'll read, right? So it's the it's actually the same process. So you do your homework, you start with the Wikipedia entry and do your readings on anti-colonialism and colonialism. And that's part of why clear produces so many little films and videos and we publish our lab book and we have an explanation of what we do and there's a book that like so again if you think about colonialism as like non-indigenous entitlement to indigenous spaces you don't show up to meeting me like i would like to tell you about my research now you show up to a space and you listen for a year then at some point someone will say hey fred I've seen you around here and you act real good when you're around here. What do you work on? And you say plastic. And they say, oh my God, we have this research question about plastic. That's how I, that's how I work in Nunatsiavut, uh, which is indigenous land here. I did not invite myself. I was invited by them because they, they knew me. They knew about me. They, they saw that I did not act as a casual jerk. And they said, hey, we have this research question. Would you like to work with us on it? And after that, it will be different for everyone. But those are the first steps. What needs to change at a, at a policy or societal level for the academy to make this a priority? Um, funding. Funding has to change. So work that takes is real slow. Community-based work is real slow. And its successes look different than published papers, right? Its successes might look like relationships. So changing those sorts of terms, which include the terms for tenure and promotion and getting the job in the first place and retaining, you know, certain people and retaining certain students whose work also looks that way, who will probably be indigenous or black or people of color. So really changing what 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 is valued so it aligns more with what happens in this kind of work, I think is is a very attainable and doable goal. And there are people actually doing it. So for instance, when I went up for promotion and tenure, there is a part of my collective agreement that my union fought to put in that recognizes my local knowledge as a thing I can get tenure for. And it doesn't matter whether I've published a paper about it or not. Right. So, so that the union did that. Even students have a jurisdiction, things that they are responsible for, accountable for, and can access. What are the land relations there? What are the relations of valuing some things versus valuing others, devaluing others? You can start by changing those and then slowly scale up into the things that are more obviously infrastructural as, as your career progresses. That was Dr. Max Liberant from Memorial University. Liberant runs the Civic Laboratory for Environmental Action Research. You can find out more about their work at civiclaboratory.nl. I also recommend you check out Max's recent book, Pollution is Colonialism. That came out last May, and it was published by Duke University Press. Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission ran from 2008 to 2015. It looked into the history and impact of our country's residential schools. The schools were part of a policy of cultural genocide, and they lasted over 100 years. The last school closed its doors in 1996. The commission's final report had 94 specific calls to action. Five of them were specifically targeted at academia. One was about creating Aboriginal language programs. Then there were a few about specific courses in med schools, nursing schools, law schools, and journalism schools. And finally, there was one about research funding. But Dr. Pamela Palmiter wrote a blistering blog post outlining how universities are failing. I quote, 
the failure to read the TRC report didn't stop people from taking the word reconciliation and literally applying it to everything they do that touches on Native issues and calling it reconciliation. I think reconciliation has gone off track. Dr. Palmetter is a Mi'kmaq citizen and member of the Eel River Bar First Nation in northern New Brunswick. The intention behind reconciliation is to uncover the truth, expose the truth, and make amends, find some way to make reparations so that we can both, you know, move forward in a good way. And, and when I say we, I mean Indigenous peoples in the Canadian state, but it would also apply if you were Indigenous and in the United States. That was the intention. However, politicians, as they usually do, appropriate the terminology that's supposed to have some power and significance behind it, and they use it for their own ends. So then all of a sudden, reconciliation, whether it be in government or universities or anywhere else, became more like um, superficial acknowledgements to Indigenous peoples. And I'm not saying that that's not important, you know. All of that stuff is important, the big, the little, and everything in between. However, if you're only stuck at the superficial, if you change the wording of National Aboriginal Day to National Indigenous Day because you think it is more respectful, what has that done to stop murder to missing Indigenous women and girls? What has that done to stop the theft of our children in foster care or over-incarceration rates or the high rates of uh, police who kill Indigenous peoples in Canada and the U.S.? It does nothing. So what I'm saying is, along with all the easy stuff, why don't you also do the stuff that is going to have the most impact on the lives of Indigenous peoples and address some of the, the very core problems that were created by the Canadian and American states. And you can only do that if you uh, do the hard stuff. And I've long said, if reconciliation feels good, trust me, it's not reconciliation. So if you're enjoying some bannock or fry bread at a powwow with your native friends, that might be nice. But what have you done to return the lands or address treaty violations, for example? I'm curious about what that kind of easy stuff is. I mean, some people may be familiar, but others might not, that when you step onto a forward-thinking, progressive Canadian campus, you might see place names or street signs with Indigenous language. You'll hear land acknowledgements. What are some of the other stuff that you might call sort of the easy stuff that universities are doing? universities ever since the Truth and Reconciliation Report, which was about all of the horrors and atrocities that were committed in residential schools in the United States, they were called Indian boarding schools. Same things happened in both countries. They said, you know, here are the things that you need to do. And they called for, you know, significant changes, for example. But what universities are doing is saying, yes, we accept and embrace TRC, um, and like you said, we're going to change the name of this building. We're going to do a land acknowledgement before every meeting. We're going to hang artwork in our classrooms. We're going to have a special student Indigenous Awareness Day. All of the stuff that, by the way, the vast majority of them had been doing anyway, long before the TRC. And then there's other things that universities are doing, like saying, oh, we're going to start hiring more Indigenous peoples to make sure that we're hiring in line with their representation in the population. And we're going to start specifically recruiting Indigenous peoples to be in higher level positions in universities. And they want to be congratulated for that. But how on earth can you pat yourself on the back for now starting to do what was always illegal to do before, when you discriminate against people, when you don't hire, when your systems are full of racism and you exclude native students and native faculty and you don't give native people tenure. I mean, you don't get to pat yourself on the back for not breaking human rights laws and anti-discrimination laws anymore. So when you see some of these sort of superficial moves towards quote unquote reconciliation, mm -hmm. Do you think that this is actually for Indigenous people or is this for white liberals to feel good? Oh my gosh, this is not for Indigenous peoples at all. I mean, <laughs> if you look at it at the corporate level, the government level and the university level, this is about, oh my goodness, look at what we're doing, funders. 
come and look at our university funders. You know, we're doing reconciliation. Donate more money. Help this university. Maybe the government will throw more money our way if we say, look, we have now an indigenous advisory committee. No power, no decision making, but we have this committee and it looks really good and it looks like reconciliation. But I always have the proviso that Everything we do to acknowledge and recognize Indigenous peoples, no matter how small, is important. But you can't get stuck there. And we also have to be very careful about it not being performative or rote. So think of land acknowledgements. Land acknowledgements are so significant. We should be saying we are sitting here on the occupied territory of, say, Mi'kma'ki. So the Mi'kmaq people. And, but it's got to be and, you know, and here's what we as an institution are doing to help Mi'kmaq people get land back or to help them advocate for more land. Like, here's what we're doing, not just, okay, we're opening this meeting, we're on the traditional territories of the Mi'kmaq people. Okay, and uh, agenda number one, and, you know, because it becomes like that, people tune it out and don't care and they don't understand the significance. Well, what do you mean? What do you mean by this is Mi'kmaq territory? And then you have to get into the uncomfortable part of reconciliation where you say, like in the university, there was a whole study done on land grab universities, that the vast majority of universities and colleges are sitting on literally stolen lands, money stolen from the native tribes who've never been compensated in breach of treaties and today don't give back to the same degree to which the theft and the dispossession happened. And we know that that happened in some places here in Canada, but it's particular in the United States. So what are you doing about that? How are you accounting for that? How do you, how are you holding yourself to account? And by just saying a rote, you know, this is Cherokee territory, doesn't say, oh, by the way, and we stole it. Our university was complicit in stealing these acres, using the money to help non-Native people, and we haven't done anything back. Like, you have to actually say those words and then take action on it. Otherwise, it's just rote. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Maybe this is like a general question about how, like, political change happens. But I'm curious if you see kind of the low-hanging fruit or the small gestures as part of like a superficial to meaningful spectrum that gets kind of people that aren't quite there slowly towards where you want them to go, or if it's something that like actually does more to sort of placate or woke wash or just distract from the more structural question, which like you just said, I mean, the land, right? I mean, is that even reconcilable? Everything is reconcilable. We can't do irreparable, undo irreparable harms like we're done in residential schools. And there's a lot of land that cannot be returned, but there's a lot of land that can be jointly governed, jointly managed. The profits and proceeds and wealth from those lands could be shared. There are large universities that have tons of parcels of land that they're not using. They could return that to the local tribe or First Nation. There's so many opportunities to actually engage in real reparations. And that's such a profound part of reconciliation that people miss out on that. It's not just the acknowledgement. You know, otherwise, it would be like saying, yes, we acknowledge that we have committed genocide against your people. I don't want to hear that unless you say, and we're going to make reparations or we have, and here's what it is that we're doing and tell us what else we can do. Because as you know, here in Canada, the government has been found guilty of both historic and ongoing genocide. And if there was a similar inquiry in the United States, like hands down, they would also be found guilty of genocide against Indigenous peoples. So imagine how offensive that would be to go around at every meeting. We acknowledge that we committed genocide against you. Okay, agenda number one, like, Come on, what are you doing for reparations? Instead of saying reconciliation, I almost think that we should be changing the word to reparations. Mm. How are you making reparations? Because that's action. It all matters, but it's got to be done together or it's, it's not moving the marker. Where is the movement for reparations? Does that exist? Yeah, it does. So 
you know, not coincidentally, the more Native Americans you have at universities and colleges, for example, the more uh, more of a critical mass you have to do research that matters to tribes and First Nations on the ground that can help them with their advocacy to push for these fundamental changes. That's direct giving back. Or, uh, for example, the work that tribal faculty or First Nation faculty here in Canada do at the community level, which is rarely acknowledged in universities and colleges as quote unquote service. Um, but the, the way that they help behind the scenes, whether it be pandemic planning, you know, drafting of laws and bylaws, helping with advocacy, supporting local governments, all of that stuff is what helps, you know, nation rebuilding and advancement of rights and native voices being recognized. And universities could have a significant role to play in fostering that at a much greater level in terms of the kinds of research supports, um, other funding supports, staffing supports, and making that stuff count. So right now, services, how many, you know, hiring committees can you sit on at your university? You know, how many advisory committees can you sit on? And while that's important for the university, maybe in an Indigenous context, they could consider, well, you know, how many um, local communities do you help out? How much volunteer work do you do? How much drafting of community newspapers or uploading to, you know, information to community websites about important research that they could use? That should be counted as service. Some already do that, but not in the same kind of way that gets acknowledged, rewarded in other faculties or by non-Indigenous peoples in universities. That's something I think people have been calling for for a long time, not just in the Indigenous context, but in, with universities in general. But the material incentives, I mean, you said it. I mean, what gets the grant funding? What gets the publications? What gets you the kind of world university rankings? How do we adjust those things so it's actually in the interest of scholars and institutions to do it? Well, I think, it, you know, we have to have that discussion about what is valued and what is considered value, especially in an Indigenous context. And university, some universities are engaged in these discussions now. Some have, you know, taken initial steps, but many don't. Many are still stuck in very biased, one-sided ideas of what is impact you know, we're only going to look at your tenure file. You're only going to be credited if your journal articles are in the most famous peer-reviewed journals that they could be, where the vast majority of people in the world will never read those journals, will never have access to it. Only other privileged people in a very small circle will have access to those journals or even care about what's in there. Real impact should also include societal impact and world impact. Now imagine if my article goes into um, a native studies journal, which doesn't have worldwide reputation and isn't read by the top scholars in the whole world, but that article helps inform and educate and empower other indigenous peoples. And then the basis of the research for that article gets presented at the United Nations in a submission calling on the United Nations to call out Canada for human rights violations. And then it does. That is massive impact, societal impact. It's about political change and legal change and social change on the ground. That is far more valuable. I think a lot of people would agree, but they don't see it happening for them. How has it happened for you? You know, publicly engaged scholar. How did you make your way through academia and get the jobs given the kind of work you're interested in? Well, um, how I got to where I am is I had to fulfill all of their requirements, knowing that they're going to judge me not on the advocacy and community based work that I do but on what they consider important. You have this many published books, this many published journals and peer-reviewed this and that. You speak at this many academic conferences. You do bring in this much money for research. So it basically means that as an Indigenous person, for many of us, I don't speak for all of us, we have to do double duty. 
because I've got to fulfill all of those requirements, which is a full-time job. But then because I belong to a community, I have obligations based on my privilege to give back there and to have impact there. So that means I'm also going to have to do journal articles and publications and, you know, community sessions and public speaking to make sure that I'm accessing all of the people who will never be in a university. So it's essentially like doing two jobs, double the work to be able to A, get the security of a tenured position because, you know, when you're a single mom and you're raising kids, you have to pay the bills. So you've got to do that. But at the same time, never turning your back on your obligations to your community. And so that's what I've done. And wherever there was a barrier. So for example, if someone said, you know, this journal or that journal, they probably won't publish your articles. I was like, okay, well then I'm going to make sure that none of this work ever goes to waste. I started my own blog site. And then when our voices weren't being represented in the media, I started my own YouTube channel. I started my own podcast so that I could feature indigenous voices from a wide variety of backgrounds. People who will be a thousand times wiser than I am and will have never gone to university. Well, how, how to push them? Because we can't expect just because of their good graces and progressive morals that they're going to do it, especially if what you're talking about costs money and may be against their material interests, or at least as they're constructed now. I find that some of the most hopeful avenues for putting pressure on and making changes comes from student organizations themselves. So you've got Native student organizations, you've got Black Lives Matter students, Stop Asian Hate students, you've got students who are engaged in the environmental movement, anti-poverty movements, um, social justice movements that coalesce and come together. They're not working in silos. And that is a very powerful force. When you have students who are protesting, signing petitions, going to the media, saying, you know, we're going to go to a different university unless you divest of fossil fuels, that's powerful. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons why it's powerful is because they're the ones paying the bills. <laughs> they're, the, they're the ones who are paying the tuition. And if you didn't want to listen to the faculty and you didn't want to listen to the communities, well, these students are the ones paying the bills. And it's best that you listen to them. And so you can see how that all of us working together has been able to make change. There's been un many universities now that are divesting of fossil fuels. There's many universities now who are creating whole new curriculums around preserving indigenous languages. I mean, keep in mind, it was uh, K to 12 schools and universities who were part of making sure that indigenous languages were wiped out. Well, they have a role to play in, you know, bringing those back, whether or not they're money makers. There's a part of the work that universities have to do just because and not because of the business model. And students help us there and also communities help with that. So keep in mind, the more of us that are in these universities that have direct ties with communities, then communities are on side saying, listen, university, we don't want to send our students there unless we are now part of your decision-making processes, unless you respond to our needs for different kinds of curriculum. And so you put all these things together, you know, the faculty, the advocates, the community, the students, and that's what's really pushing for change. The change isn't just coming out of goodwill from universities, right? It's kind of like governments. Governments don't just say, oh yeah, of course, we'll give you some human rights. You have to fight <laughs> tooth and nail for a very long time. That was Dr. Pamela Palmiter. She is a Mi'kmaq citizen and member of the Eel River Bar First Nation in northern New Brunswick. She is also chair in Indigenous Governance at Ryerson University. You can find her blog post on our show notes and check out her podcast, Warrior Life. We'll link to the episode where she talks about higher education and reconciliation. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Our lead producer is Jay Coburn, and our assistant producer is Ren Bangert. Our managing producer is Mark Apollonio. Our lead research assistant on this episode was Franklin Bartol. We also had academic advising from Dr. Mark Spooner. As always, our theme song and outro is composed by Mike Barber. Our graphic designer is Dakota Coop, And I'm your host and editor, Gordon Caddick. You can send us feedback by emailing the show. 
The address is dartsandletterspod at gmail.com or tweet us at dartsandletters. This is a production of Cited Media, and we are backed by academic research grants. This episode was supported by a research grant to look at higher education policy. The lead academic advisor on that project is Dr. Mark Spooner, and the research assistant is Franklin Bartol. Plus, we are supported by our generous patrons. Join us and join them by going to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Patrons get content a day early. Thanks for listening.